Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse number 1, we'll read down to verse number 12. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, Now Bethlehem and the land of Judah are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of these, uh, out of these shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Verse number 7, Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them, diligently what time uh, the star appeared. He sent, from, uh, sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gold, gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this Christmas story that is recorded. And uh, it is part of our modern day image of what the nativity looks like as we reflect on the wise men being there. Father, I pray that through the preaching of your word, I ask that it goes forth clearly. I pray that uh, the uh, truth will fall on good soil. May our hearts be tender and open to that which you'd have for us to hear. And uh, Father, I pray that you give me the right words. Um, Lord, uh, it's a little overcast, a little chilly in here. I pray that uh, through everything that's said and done, I pray that we leave here glorifying you and rejoicing in the fact that we came. And uh, Lord, I I pray that uh, over these next few moments, uh, you just bless this time. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The story of Christmas reminds us of many lessons. One thing we learn about Christmas is the fact that God is sovereign and has and is and will continue to accomplish His work here on this earth. We're reminded in Scripture that His his work is great and perfect. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are judgment. A God of truth. And without iniquity, just and right is He. You may ask the question this morning, well, what is God's work? You say it's good, you say it's perfect, what is His work? Well, He, on a daily basis, is in the work of first glorifying Himself, but also redeeming all mankind. The word redemption simply means to purchase back, to ransom, to liberate, or rescue from captivity or bondage. I heard a story one time about a, a young boy who built a small sailboat one sunny afternoon. He painted it and added all kinds of intricate details on the outside, and he cherished this boat. He desired to take it out on its maiden voyage and took it out into a, a, a local lake there, and as it began to get into the deep portion of the lake, a huge gust of wind came and carried his boat out of sight. Several days later, the boy, still devastated over the loss of his boat, came across a local toy store. As he looked in the window of the store, he saw a familiar-looking object. It was his precious toy boat. He ran in and told the store owner, Hey, hey, that's my boat! That's my boat! I constructed it and designed every detail of it. The store owner looked at the boy and said, Actually, that was your boat, but now it is my boat. If you desire to have your boat back, you must pay $10. The 
The young boy handed over the cash and retrieved his prized possession of that toy boat. So it is with us that a holy, sinless God constructed and designed each and every one of us, all mankind, out of the dust of the ground and gave us the breath of life and man became a living soul. But we know that we sinned and trespassed against the holy God and because of that, we are now under the bondage of sin and death. Romans 5.8 reminds us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. Romans 5.12 We're no longer able to be in the presence of our holy God. God desired to change that. Romans 5.8, the Bible says, But God commendeth, or He showed His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know the passage of Scripture in John chapter 3, verse number 16, For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ came to this earth to pay the price for our sins so that God would no longer look at us as sinners, but rather as justified or as to say, just as if we never sinned. And at that moment, when you call upon God to save you, when you uh, humble yourself and you kneel before a holy God and say, God, I can't merit heaven of my own. I'm calling on you to save me. That is the moment of justification when God begins to look at you through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through the blood of Christ, and He says you are declared righteous. But not only is God desiring that work for everybody... God's work is ongoing as well with everybody. God doesn't just worry about that moment of salvation. He desires to continually work in us so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. Somebody said we uh, may never get in this life to the point where we are completely sinless, but we can have the attitude of desiring to sin less. And so all of us, we must be uh, uh, discerning that God is not done with you. God still has a work in you and through you and, and desires to cleanse you. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse number 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Until you stand before your Maker, God has a work in you that He's desiring to do. With that being said, God's work is... Not only just ongoing, God's work is perfect and great, but God's work involves us. It's a personal work. I think sometimes in church ministry we get focused on events. We get focused on the things surrounding church. What church is all about is about Christ and His people. And if we stop caring about people, then we have forgotten what God truly loves. God loves the world. God loves people. And God's work involves us. Amen. There's a group of folks that came to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse number 28 and 29. And they asked this question, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent, whom God the Father sent. Believing on Jesus Christ is the very first step to you accomplishing and fulfilling God's perfect work in your life. So the Word of God involves us believing that Jesus is the Savior of the world and calling on Him to save us from the sin that separates us from a holy God. However, not all wish to participate in God's work of redemption for them. The purchasing back of their soul. Many throughout history and even today reject God's free gift of salvation. Today in our passage of Scripture, we find several contrasting figures surrounding the birth of Jesus. One group, through pride and jealousy, rejected the Savior, while other figures humbly sought, worshipped, and glorified Jesus. This morning, I want us to see three elements of this Christmas story that will help us seek Christ in a deeper way, understand what it means to worship Him and glorify Him with our lives. This morning, as we look at point number one, I wanted to uh, uh, give you point number one, which is the problem of many. The problem of 
many. The Christmas season is desirous of many to be a time of peace and calm. A time of rest, relaxation, and reflection. We hope for scenes, uh, serene scenes of snow showers outside our windows on Christmas morning while maybe nestled by a fire in our homes. The modern day nativity scene echoes a message of tranquility. This indeed was not the stage that was set for the first Christmas. We know that according to Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph traveled from Nazareth to uh, Bethlehem to be taxed. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the Bible records, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, look at this now, being great with child. This first Christmas, the original scene that is being depicted is not a scene of peace and calm, but rather a scene of great uh, turmoil and, and, and great migration. And as uh, uh, this decree goes forth, uh, there is perhaps some anxiety and, and even some discomfort as, of course, Mary being great with child would be traveling. I remember uh, just a few months back, my uh, wife uh, was uh, 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 just about to have Hudson and and uh, we were talking about all different kinds of trips that we need to make, see family and all these different things. And I remember my wife just saying to me, I don't want to go anywhere. I don't really want to go down the street to the grocery store. Why? Because she was great with child. There was a, a great discomfort physically within all of that. But I think beyond just the physical discomfort of having to travel, and many Bible scholars believe that this travel would be about four days or so in its journey from Nazareth to, uh, to Bethlehem, uh, there would be uh, not only great uh, physical pain, but I think of the emotional exhaustion and anxiety that they would face. They were migrating back to another city, traveling quite a good distance. But when they got there, they would have to pay a tax. And I don't know about you, but Christmas and taxes just don't seem to go together. I don't think of taxes when I think of Christmas. But nonetheless, they were going, and as they were going to be there... Joseph was going to have to pay a price. He was going to have to pay, perhaps for an inn, for uh, a hotel or something like that while he was there. He was uh, going to have to pay this tax. Listen, in those days, there was no withholding from your paycheck. When he got there, he would have to pay something. And so there was, there was a great migration, there was great expense but beyond that, from an overview, we see that there is great turmoil both politically and socially. Beyond that, there is a problem brewing within the hearts of the people in Jerusalem. For in Matthew chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, the Bible says, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. Look at this verse now, verse number 3. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. I see this statement, Herod, uh, Herod the king had heard these things and was troubled. What was he, what was, what does the word troubled mean? It means to cause one inward commotion, take away his calmness of mind, disturb the inner soul. I ask myself this question, what would a, why would a king be troubled? Why would somebody with great power and great rule be troubled over a little baby? Well, it is the direct connection to what he heard in the previous statement where the Bible says, where is he that is born? Look at this phrase, king of the Jews. For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. You see, the folks that were coming, these wise men that were coming their way, were not there to worship King Herod. They were there to worship the Christ child. And this 
shows that there was a threat in the heart and mind of King Herod, which brings us to letter A, the problem of pride. The problem of pride. Herod was known even by secular historians to be one who had, quote, frequent acts of violent jealousy against others. In the passage we can see he did not like the idea of there being another king. Another person to grab the spotlight. Another person to ascend uh, to power. At the heart of it, all of us have a similar problem with pride. All of us have times where things need to be done our way and in our timetable. We all have times where we feel our own personal throne, so to speak, is in jeopardy. We want things to work out in our way and in our timetable. We want to know the end. We already uh, think we know the end from the beginning. We think our desires are all uh, all that matters. The whole universe revolves around us. We may not say that openly, but in our hearts there is jealousy whenever somebody perhaps surpasses us in some kind of success or perhaps in some kind of a promotion. I've heard teenagers say this phrase, oh, that person thinks they are the main character. You ever heard that? That there is this whole thing called life is but a movie. And everybody around us are supporting cast to make us look better, to uh, make our storyline go picture perfect. And we'll use and manipulate people to get what we want. No doubt Herod was experiencing this as later on he would uh, create a terrible atrocity. But we understand that pride will bring destruction. Proverbs chapter 16, verse number 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. I love what John Bunyan said in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. And so this morning we need to humble ourselves before a holy God. And uh, when things don't go our way, we don't need to shake our fist at God and say, why are you not giving me the success that is due me? But rather humble ourselves and say, something is greater at work in the plan of God. Some of us even... In this room today, perhaps are wrestling with pride right now. Knowing in your heart that you refuse to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. The desire of flesh, or a selfish narrative rather, that states my works are my Savior. My religion is my Savior. Will surely only bring you destruction. For entrusting in your salvation apart from God, is selfish. It is prideful. I've come across folks knocking doors and I talk to them and I say, hey, how do you know if you were to die today that you'd go to heaven? And a lot of people say, because of my works, because I'm a good person, or because I have attended this church, or because I'm part of this religion. And you begin to show them that the Bible says contrary but in their pride, they push against that and they, they want to believe that it is me that can get myself to heaven. I have power to get myself to heaven. My works, no doubt, God will have to bow before me and say, you truly are a good person. Enter into my heaven. But we understand that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And so this morning, no matter who you are, saved or unsaved, we must wrestle with this element of pride. Herod's pride and jealousy would carry out a wicked act of killing all the children two years old and under in Jerusalem in hopes to eradicate the Christ child. We know that, uh, that an all-knowing God, who's sovereign, transcended, God gave instruction to Joseph and Mary that they would flee down uh, to Egypt to escape harm's way. Which leads us to our second point, not only the problem of pride, but the problem of peril. The problem of peril. The danger that now this, this powerful king would have over his subjects. 
Matthew reminds us that it, of this unfortunate fulfilled prophecy uh, from Jeremiah 35. As you look at uh, verse number uh, 17, Matthew chapter 2, verse number 17, the Bible says, Then it was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard lamentations and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. You say, Pastor Andrew, what does that have to do with this situation? What does a prophecy in Jeremiah have to do with anything? And this prophecy would be fulfilled later on as Herod's jealousy would, would bring him to make a decision that would cause great mourning and weeping in Jerusalem. His jealousy, he would bring out a decree that all the children, two years old and under, were to be killed because they threatened His kingdom. And so this morning, I believe that many of the people in Jerusalem, as they see the temper flaring, and as they see the jealousy ensuing in Herod's heart as he hears this message, Perhaps the fear, the trembling in all Jerusalem, as we've read in verse number uh, 3. All Jerusalem with him was troubled. Perhaps the prophecy of Jeremiah is beginning to echo in their minds. And there is peril to be had. May I remind us that God in His omniscience would know what Herod would do. But let me remind you, anytime God steps into the picture and pride goes against God, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be issues. And listen, even in our world today, when we claim that we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are those that are filled with pride that desire to harm. There's those that desire to push down, to suppress the message of the Christ child, to, uh, to harm them and not allow them to, uh, to succeed. And so it is that Herod's pride has flared up within him. And there is now peril in the hearts of the people of Jerusalem. Then leads us to letter C, the problem of the powerless. The problem of the powerless. Look with me in verse number 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests, this is Herod, and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. They begin to go and talk about prophecy that's being fulfilled. They know exactly where Christ is to be born. I just had this thought while I was preparing this message. If there was ever a group of people that I would have thought wanted to go to Christ, naturally, without knowing much context behind these people, you would think that the Jews, the religious folks, would desire to see Jesus. You would think that after all the years of prophecy being put out and preached and proclaimed and written down and passed down from generation to generation to generation, that hey, there would be a Messiah that would come and deliver the world of their sin, but also set up an earthly kingdom at some point. You would think that when He was born and they knew He was born, that they would be the first ones in line to go see Jesus. We don't find that. In fact, throughout Scripture, it's actually the most unlikely people that we would naturally think that went to see Jesus. We know in the book of Luke that it's recorded that the shepherds were in their fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angels of the Lord came. And we know the story. They sang and, uh, and, and, and gave great messages un, uh, unto us. A child is born. And so uh, and these shepherds left what they were doing and began to travel. And we, uh, if you have a modern day nativity scene, you know that uh, on one side you have the shepherds, right? They came. They wanted to see Jesus. They weren't religious. They didn't have much to offer. They were but humble shepherds desiring to see Him. And another group, they're coming from the East. These wise men, who will look at their origin here in just a little bit, they're the only other ones that we know of that actively pursue Christ. 
But the religious, they were, I believe, worried about their own kingdom. Well, you might say, well, yeah, they, they probably didn't go maybe because they didn't know the exact location. And I would say to that, my pushback would be, well, the wise men found them. They had no problem. They searched diligently. And I believe that they found Christ because they sought Christ. We understand that in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse number 13, the Bible says, And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And for all those that are seeking after Christ, for all those that are seeking after hope, God will make Himself known. The problem, the reason why so many never find Christ is not because He didn't desire to make Himself known. It's because they never looked in the first place. You know why I think the religious didn't seek to go find Jesus? Because in truly seeking and finding out Jesus, it would mean the end of all the power and prestige they gained through their religion. They allude in, Micah, or in this passage of Scripture, uh, verses um, uh, 4 and, and 5, uh, 5 and 6 rather, that uh, they would begin to uh, quote or paraphrase uh, Micah chapter 5, verse number 2 that says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be the lo- little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto him that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, uh, from of old, from everlasting. I believe that they turned to the king so that they could keep their power and prestige they had built. They understood that when Christ came, he would do away with all that they had built up earthly. People would no longer desire to turn to them. People would no longer give their money to them. People would no longer seek their advice and their pursuits. So what do they do? Right? If you can't beat them, cheat them. I'm going to go to the king. We're going to go to the king and we're going to put together a little plan. And in hopes that this king, while not as all-powerful as uh, God, maybe he'll be able to snuff out this small fire and put out uh, the Christ child so that we can have our earthly kingdom accomplished. We know that Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Look at the description here. And the government shall be upon His shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. I just want to pause there. We all like to have our ears tickled from time to time. We like when people tell us we're wonderful. We like when people come to us for advice and we get to counsel them. But what does the Bible say here? That His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government, and the peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David, upon His kingdom, to order and establish it with judgment and with justice. And uh, from henceforth, ever forever, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will perform this. They were clinging to any bit of power that they possibly could, but in, in the grand scope of things, they could not possess any power greater than the God Almighty. I am the Lord. There is none else. There is no God beside me. I will gird thee, though thou hast uh, not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from uh, the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. and There is none else. There was a wise king by the name of King Cantun. Uh, or Canute, rather. He ruled over Denmark, Norway, and England more than a thousand years ago. A wise ruler, he worked diligently to make the lives of his subjects better. As it often is the case, uh, he was surrounded by those who sought to gain influence and uh, uh, prominence with him. And according to an ancient story, he grew tired of their continual flatteries, determined to put an end to it. 
He ordered that his throne be carried out uh, to the seashore and gather his uh, uh, his quarters uh, uh, about it. But the sea, uh, by the sea, the king commanded the tide not to come in. Yet soon the waters were lapping around his his legs as the tide did not heed his command. According to one historian's account, King Canute rose up from his throne and said, Let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings. For there is none worthy of the name, but he whom heaven, earth, and sea obey by eternal laws. God possesses all power, and that troubles the hearts of the religious. Your religion has no power to send you to heaven. It is only by the finished work of our all-powerful Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. So we see the problem of many. There was pride. There was peril. There was a power struggle. But number two, I want us to see the preparation of the Magi. The preparation of the Magi. And we get the word Magi because in uh, our Bible, the word wise men comes from the Greek word magoi. Originally, the word often refers to a class of Persian wise men and possibly priests who were interpreters of special signs, particularly in astrology. Uh, eventually, the word was used variously to refer to one who possesses supernatural knowledge and ability, a magician or even a deceiver or seducer. The original meaning of Magoi is likely uh, the uh, original view here, wise men who interpreted special signs. There's three reasons why we're able to identify this. The first is they acknowledged that they were, they were interested in the stars. They said, we have seen his star and we desire to worship him. Secondly, the Bible states that they were from the east, which would be uh, the direction of Babylon in ancient Persia. Third, of all of the people of the East, the Babylonians had more opportunities to learn of the Jewish Scriptures. So they were studying. They had known there was prophecy about this. And, and these uh, Scriptures contain many prophecies of a coming Messiah, including Daniel, who had great influence within the government. He was a government official of Babylon uh, uh, about 600 years earlier. And he foretold the coming Messiah. In Daniel chapter 9, we understand about the weeks that Daniel uh, puts out. And he even predicts all the way down to the exact year when Jesus the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Also, tens of thousands of Jews lived in Babylon during the time of exile in 605 to 536 B.C. And they maintained a large presence there for the following centuries. Many Bible scholars believe that the wise men would come to Jesus a few months after his birth. These magi, following the star, uh, they bring expensive gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus. As these wise men came, I want us to see that they came prepared. And first, they came with a prepared trip. Letter A, prepared trip. Look with me at verse number 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 2. And now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. A trip like this was not something that would be spontaneous. We oftentimes today, we, uh, we have such uh, great abilities to travel almost at the drop of a hat. Even here uh, in this region, we have many airports that can get us really all the way around the world at any moment that we desire it. And uh, we can go up to uh, Hartford or New Haven or even down into New York City and, and catch any of, uh, of the airports there and be able to fly and get anywhere quickly. But a trip like this, we don't exactly know where they came from. We can kind of make some estimates. A trip like this would take some time. It would take a lot of planning as they had rough terrain. We don't know how many went. We sing this song, We Three Kings of Orient. We really don't know that there were three, three wise men or even three kings for that matter. 
We make that assessment merely because they brought three gifts. And so uh, we think that maybe there may have been three wise men. But the Bible does not say that there were three wise men. It could have been a whole caravan of wise men for uh, that matter. They planned and they planned their route. There was great uh, not only a planning of the route, but I think that they were anticipating for God to do something. They were watchful. So many things happen uh, around us that we're not observant to. And yet these men, they were watching the stars, yeah, maybe even for uh, bad purposes of, of astrology, but nonetheless, they were waiting, they were watching. So they see the star. While I don't believe in astrology by any stretch of the imagination, we do know that the Bible mentions several things about the stars and heaven. Psalm chapter 19, verse number 1 says, The, uh, the uh, heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Psalm 97, 6 says, The heavens declare His righteousness, and all the people see His glory. The stars were something that everybody could see. This was something that everybody could uh, discern from. Nowadays, with light pollution and things, I, I think that people lose the majesty of God because they're not able to see the beauty in the stars like they could many years before these great lights have, uh, have uh, uh, popped up. One day, each of us will embark on a trip. Not a trip that will lead us to another part of the world, but a trip that will lead us into eternity. And I want to ask you this question, are you prepared for that trip? The wise men, we believe, sought the Scriptures, and in knowing the Scriptures, it brought them to Jesus. And I want to encourage each of you today, if you do not know where you're going to spend eternity, it's good to prepare now. It's vital that you prepare now. And just as these wise men sought the Scriptures for their guidance, you must seek the Scriptures for your guidance. And use them to guide you on your way. So it was a prepared trip. But secondly, it was, there was prepared tenderness. There was prepared tenderness by these uh, wise men. Go with me to verse number 11. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 11. And when they were come to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I want to highlight that phrase, they fell down and worshipped him. As I failed to mention in the beginning of this message, the title of the message is, Come to Worship Him. As the uh, wise men say in uh, verse uh, number uh, number one, and they were come to worship him. That word worship is derived from the phrase worship. We get the word worship because at one period of time, people used to say that is worship, meaning that is worth my investment. We've of course lost the T, and now it is worship. That word worship to these, these men as they traveled, they understood that seeking Christ, seeking Jesus, was worth the investment. It was worth the investment of their time as they searched and they journeyed uh, uh, on their way. It was going to take them away from what they were used to. It was going to take them away from the country and land and origin and all that they had known to a foreign land. But they said, nonetheless, we are come to worship Him. He's worth the investment of our time. But also they worshipped Him with their mouth. They were willing to openly acknowledge with others that they were searching to desire and desired to worship Jesus. They went around to people in Jerusalem and said, Hey, where is Christ? Where is He? We are come to worship Him. And they weren't afraid to share that with those that were around them. Sometimes we use the phrase around here, we are here to praise and worship God. We say that in the context of church. And I think nowadays so many people have used praise and worship and almost in their minds made them synonymous terms. But that's not the case. Praise is really uh, merely an outpouring of our lips towards God, while worship is an outpouring of our heart. 
towards God. In a service this size, we can stand here and we can sing. And in the songs that we sing, they're all about a message of Christ and uplifting Him and giving Him glory. And we give praise through our lips in song. But we can give praise without giving worship. Because worship takes place in here. It takes place in the heart. It is acknowledging within yourself that God is worth what I'm about to do. Every element of the service today is all pointed to helping all of us worship God. Sure, you can praise Him, you can sing to Him, but as you sang, did you think to yourself, God is actually worthy of me singing today? God is actually worthy of me acknowledging Him? Or do we just kind of go through the motions? Even in my own heart, many times on a Sunday night or Sunday morning, Wednesday, uh, I will come to church and I will lead uh, the singing here to give praise to God. But sometimes in my own heart, I say, is it worth it? I'm a little tired today. And my voice is a little scratchy. I'm not sure that I'm going to sing super well today, so I guess I'll just stop singing. He's worthy of everything you do. Not just the singing, but also the giving. Sure, in the offering, when we partook in that, there was no singing. There was nobody standing up and saying, God is great, God is great, God is great. But when we sat there, we filled out that tithe check, or we put it in an envelope, put the cash in the envelope, and we put in the offering. What should have happened is, as we put that in the offering, we should have said, God's worthy of this money. The Apostle Paul said this, that when we give, we are not to give begrudgingly or of necessity. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And while many put the emphasis on the action, God and the Apostle Paul put the emphasis on the heart. It is what you do with your heart, why you do it, that matters. Motives matter. And as we come into a service today, not only through singing, but also in our tithe, in all of our service, we do it as unto the Lord because He is worthy investment. And so there was a prepared tenderness, not only the fact that they were willing to use their mouth to worship, not only that they were willing to use their time, but they were willing to worship with their posture. They were willing to, as the Bible says, fall down. They were willing to decrease. They were willing to get on their hands and knees and face and, and acknowledge that this baby, this young child that is here, is far greater than I. He has a far greater kingdom than I could ever have. He has more knowledge than I could ever have. And they fell down and they worshipped Him. They humbled themselves. In the first point, we talked about our pride. Some of us, as soon as we get done with this message... Maybe physically, but definitely spiritually and emotionally, we need to fall down before our holy God. When we've shaken our fists and said, God, I know it's better for me. God, you didn't need to allow this to come into my life. God, you must hate me. I have bigger ambitions. I have better plans for my life. We say, no, God, I humble myself before you to be his servant. To accomplish His work and His will and His way. His timing. They fell down and they worshipped Him. But finally, it leads us to our third point. They worshipped with their treasures. They worshipped with their treasures. Which leads us to point letter C. Which is prepared treasures. They prepared for the trip. They prepared their heart and tenderness to the Lord. But they prepared their treasures. These gifts were not random. They were not last minute. How many of you still have some Christmas shopping to do? All right. I see a couple hands. I'm not going to call you out. There's some in 815 service too. Let me remind you, today's December 24th. Tomorrow's Christmas. All right. Probably should have attended the earlier service so you had time to shop, right? The National Retail Federation estimates that one point, uh, 142 million people will hit the shops for Super Saturday to pick up last-minute gifts ahead of Christmas. Now, those of you who don't know, that was yesterday, okay? And how many of you drove by a mall or were in a store yesterday for Super Saturday, okay? A lot of folks. And I was not out. Um, 
I came here to the church early in the morning. I went right home and, and uh, did some work there. My wife, she had gone out to pick up a couple uh, last-minute groceries for our Christmas dinner. And she was telling me that every place she went, it was packed. It was packed. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that um, uh, this uh, National Retail uh, Federation, in their estimate, was pretty low. I think they were pretty pretty off. I think there's a whole lot more people than 142 uh, million people here. But they're what are they trying to do? They're trying to cram in their last minute things. And some of us we may go home and uh, maybe on our way home stop in the Dollar Tree and just pick up some little stocking stuffers here and there. And and maybe there's some thought to uh, uh, our gifts, but uh, sometimes there's no thought and we just kind of do it just uh, for uh, a good attitude with others. You know, there's something special about a gift that somebody thought through. We've all received gifts from time to time and we just kind of look at it and say, thank you for thinking of me. But what am I going to do with this? (laughs) But we all have had special moments, I hope, where somebody got us a gift. And it may not have been the most costly gift It may not have been what other people would say is, wow, that's the best gift. But we knew in our heart that that person put a lot of effort and thought into getting us the perfect gift. I believe these wise men, before they traveled, they didn't didn't on their way stop at Walmart and pick up some things. (laughs) The desert in Walmart. These folks, these wise men, they brought the possessions with them. And they planned before the trip, this is what we're going to take. And it was a perfect, these were perfect gifts because they represented something. Let's look closely at these gifts this morning. The first thing that they give is gold. One songwriter said this, we bring you gold because you are a king. And these men are desiring to give something of great physical uh, uh, wealth and they're dropping it before Him while it is it pales in comparison to the gift that Christ would give. It was the best monetary gift that these men could bring and they're bringing it before a king. He was God in the flesh. But then these next two gifts, the frankincense. They brought frankincense because He is our offering or sacrifice. I did some digging to try to find what frankincense and myrrh really are. Frankincense is a white uh, resin or gum. It is obtained from a tree by making uh, incisions in the bark and allowing the gum to flow out. It is highly fragrant when burned and was therefore used in worship uh, where it was burned as a pleasant uh, offering to God. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 30, verse number 34. Frankincense is a symbol of holiness and righteousness. The gift of frankincense to the Christ child was symbolic of his willingness to become a sacrifice, wholly giving himself up as an offering for us. But not only did they bring him frankincense because he's our offering, they brought him myrrh. Why did they bring him myrrh? Well, myrrh was obtained from a tree as well in the same manner as frankincense. It was a spice and was uh, under uh, or used rather for embalming. It was also uh, sometimes mingled with uh, wine uh, to, to form an a, a, um, article of drink. Myrrh symbolizes bitterness, suffering, and affliction. The baby Jesus would grow and suffer greatly as a man and would pay the ultimate price when he gave his life on the cross for all who would believe in him. And I find it no coincidence that frankincense and myrrh are both from a tree. One represents the offering and sacrifice. And the other represents the bitterness. And Jesus, while He hung on the tree, the cross, He was our offering, our sacrifice for us on that cross as He bore the sins of all mankind. And He drank of that bitter cup He was buried in a tomb. Thanks be to God that He didn't stay in that tomb. But then He rose again three days later, conquering death, the grave, and hell for us and offers a free gift of salvation. And I believe that these wise men understood that. 
That's why they chose to bring these specific gifts. They could have brought just simply gold and silver and bronze and all the physical things that the world had offered. But with gold, they brought something very detailed, something so specific to what I believe they thought Christ was truly there to accomplish. So they prepared treasures. Which brings us to our third and final point this evening, this morning, the precautionary mandate. The precautionary mandate. Look with me at Matthew chapter 2, verse number 12. This last point will be just from this singular verse here. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 12. Being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. These men were warned through the revelation of God that they should not return to Herod. They were warned. Not only were they warned, they heeded that warning. And they continued on their journey back home a different way than they came. They came one way, but when they got to the Christ child, God warned them, don't go back the same way. There's danger, there's treachery, perhaps even death in the process, as Herod might seek to kill you. They depart to their own country another way. You understand every Sunday from this pulpit, we are given warnings from God. Sure, not in the same uh, revelationary way as they did. They were warned of God in a dream. But we are given uh, warnings from the revelation of God's Word. God has given to us things and reveals to us, hey, don't do this. Don't live this way. There is suffering. There is pain. There is consequences for living this lifestyle. Many times we hear the warnings, but we never do anything to change it. And we go back the same way we came. We come to church, hear about the Lord, We go home and we live out the same things that we came with. What we need to understand today is, Christian, you need to hear the warning warning and turn the way of thinking to another way. This upcoming year is 2024. I think all of us have had things in our life in 2023 where we weren't pleasing God. We were headed down a path of destruction and a path of danger and treachery. Listen, my friend, don't go into 2024 the same way you went into 2023. Change is possible. You can uh, 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 turn from that which was harming you to that which offers peace, hope, and love. But it takes a choice. And these wise men, they said, we're not going to go back the same way we came. We're going to make some changes. There's going to be help. There's going to be guidance from God in it. But it's going to bring safety in the end. But I want to speak today as well as we close to the individual who does not know they're going to heaven when they die. To bring this message full circle, we talked about the pride that ultimately can send us to hell if we don't acknowledge that Jesus himself has the power to save. If we trust in our own works, if we trust in our own religion, we will but face utter destruction in a place called hell. If you do not put your full faith and trust in God. Only God has the power to save. Religion cannot take you to heaven. Your works cannot take you to heaven. We're talking about how the Magi searched and they prepared for Jesus. Are you searching and are you prepared for Jesus today? Go no further. You've been instructed that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The only way you can be in the presence of God for all of eternity after passing from this earth is through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We extend that to you today. Perhaps you drove here. You pulled in the parking lot. Maybe there were some thoughts in your mind what was going to happen in the afterlife. You thought, what happens if I breathe my last breath on this earth? I don't know what's going to happen. Today we extend to you another way. 
Another way in which you can bring change and which you can face a different eternity than what you came with. In putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved from your sin and to be in the presence of God for all of eternity. But the choice is yours. I cannot make you. Nobody in this church can make you or manipulate you into that decision. The choice must be yours. Yours alone. Just as nobody bent the arms of these wise men to change their direction, we cannot bend your arm to change your direction. You must have a point where you humbly come to the Lord and say, God, I can't get there on my own. I need you and you alone to take me there. For by grace are we saved. Through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I don't know if there's somebody in here today within the sound of my voice. You don't know where you're going to spend eternity when you die. The heartbeat of our church is to reach out to you with compassion and love and to help you to see that there is a way that you can go to heaven. So this morning as we conclude this message, I want you to be thinking in your own heart, where have I allowed pride to be my problem? God, I haven't prepared my heart for worship like I should have. I've been coming to church long enough, just going through the routine, just doing what we've always done. But I've never truly come to worship and show worth to God in heaven. Maybe tonight, maybe this morning, that third point is exactly what you needed. You came here, but you need to change. You know you've been in the grips of sin. You know you've been struggling with drugs and you know you've been struggling with, uh, with, uh, with your lust and you know you've been struggling with your anger and your bitterness and all these different things that are taking you away from living the victorious Christian life and today you need to surrender. You need to bring your pride. You need to bring your problems to the altar and say, God, help me. Help me. You are worthy of my praise. You are worthy living my life for. And I'm going back to my home another way. Another person uh, uh, with, with new motives, with new desires in my life. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I believe many in this room today know, to, know that if they were to die, that they would go to heaven. You've had a time where you have called on God to save you. You have a specific moment. I want to extend this invitation, though, to perhaps the one or two or three, I don't know how many in here, who don't know that if they were to die today, they'd go to heaven. I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to call you out. Certainly will not look down upon anybody. This is a call out of love and compassion to each one. That they can experience the peace that only Jesus can bring this Christmas. And if you are the one that I'm speaking of today, you say, Pastor Andrew, I do not know that if I were to die today, that I would go to heaven. Could you please pray for me? Would you lift your hand? I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to do anything like that. I just want to pray for you in just a moment. You say, Pastor Andrew, I don't know that if I were to die today, that I'd go to heaven. Would you please pray for me? Put your hand right up, right, right back down. Perhaps there's somebody today, you say, Pastor Andrew, I've allowed pride to get in my way. I've, in a sense, shaken my fist at God. Because God, I know better. We've tried to manipulate God's will. Maybe it's in your own life. Maybe it's in the heart of your child. Maybe your child is, is uh, surrendering to ministry or something like that. And, and you, you push against God and say, no, no, I don't want that in my child's life. I don't want them to, to do that. No, no, no. Maybe today you'll be willing to acknowledge that in some way I've allowed pride to get in the way of my relationship with God. Would you be honest and slip your hand up? Pastor Andrew, please pray for me that I'll surrender, that I'll, I'll fall down to my pride. Thank you for your honesty. Maybe there's somebody in here today that you need to prepare to meet the Lord. Maybe there's one other person in here that says, hey, 
Pastor Andrew, I came in one way, and I know after that third point there was something that the Holy Spirit pinpointed that I need to change. And I need to go back to my home another way. I need to go back with a changed uh, motive, with a changed purpose, with a changed desire. And it cannot be the same. Would you lift your hand up, Pastor Andrew, please pray for me that I'll, I'll make some, some real changes in this upcoming year. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Father, I pray that you be with these decisions. In a moment, as we, as we uh, uh, open up the altar, I pray that uh, folks will come forward and commit to make change and to fulfill your work, your perfect work in their life. And Lord, that each of us will leave here today uh, closer to you, being more conformed to your image and, and being witnesses in our community, great testimonies. Father, be with this invitation. We ask your name.